Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Welcome to A.M. Byte. And as you can see, or if you're listening, I'm sure you're realizing this is a special show. As I always like to say, variety is the spice of Gnosis. And in this age of Hermes, we always got to play the trickster with ourselves, with the world. So I like to do a few different things, and this is definitely different, but it's special, but it's also going to be very cool. You might say that the overarching theme of this show is, well, the Demiurge, our old friend Yaldabaoth or Yaldibaldi, and the Sethians, my favorite Gnostic group, and we're going to be studying them a lot, from their history to their theology to their impact on culture. And as you can see, speaking of the Demiurge, well, you can't see, but let me show you. I am wearing this special shirt I like to wear a lot from the, the from the merch store, and that's our Not Today Archons, which you can find. And I feel it's a little bit of protection, if you would. But anyway, our first show will be with Dr. David Litwa on his excellent book, a work that I really enjoyed, The Evil Creator. He will be discussing, yes, the Demiurge and his Archons, as well as a lot about the history of early Christianity and Gnosticism in general. An excellent discussion, and I feel uh, David is part of that innovative and groundbreaking generation of Gnostic scholars that includes uh, April DeConnick, Dylan Burns, David Brackey, and others. I know you're going to enjoy a lot. After our interview with Dr. David Litwa, I am going to uh, show you or include my presentation on the Sethians. It's from the Finding Hermes program. I think you'll enjoy my very kick-ass slide presentations and insights on everything about this fascinating Gnostic group. Again, or as a, I keep saying, my favorite sect and the real punk rockers of the ancient world, if you would. And their message, as I'll keep banging the drum about we need more than ever for all subscribers whether it's patreon ab prime or red circle i'm also going to include the q a session that we had after my presentation uh, there were some amazing insightful questions there were, it was an electric discussion and it really adds a little oomph to the whole sethian presentation as a further bonus, I'm also going to include my interview with Dylan Burns on his also excellent book, The Apocalypse of the Alien God. 
There will also be a lot about Yaldi Baldi and his Archons and their monkey shines. But um, there are certainly going to be a lot on the Sethians, specifically the 3rd and 4th century Sethians, the more magical, or as they're known, the Platonizing uh, Sethians. So putting this all together, I feel this isn't just another Aeon Bite episode on the Gnostics. This is more of a course. You're going to get more than three hours of high-octane electric and nuclear content on the ancient Gnostics and I feel it will help you out whether you're looking for historical, uh, sociological, or even spiritual answers. I think you're going to find it on this special show. I mentioned the Finding Hermes program and what it is is uh, once a month if you join the program, we have a we have an exclusive and private Q and A and discussion group. Also, separately, we uh, once a month I will I provide a a presentation on the Gnostics, their rituals, their practice, their history, or some other cool quirks you might have. I often have guests too who will come and give exclusive talks to the group. Uh, recently, I've done presentations on Simon Megan's, obviously the Sethians, why we live in Gnostic times. I've done presentations on the Valentinians, the Nassines, and other Gnostic sects. I've done presentations on rituals like Gnostic sex magic, uh, Gnostic vowel magic, Gnostic meditation, and I've certainly, or we've had uh, presentations on the Gospel of Thomas and other uh, Gnostic writings. So it's very cool. And for now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you uh, holiday prices if you want to join the Finding Hermes program. I'm going to cut it for a while about 50%. And the reason is that many listeners have reached out and said, hey, I really uh, want to join. I, I need this Gnostic dope. But, uh, you know, these are hard financial times, if you had noticed. I'm sure everybody's noticed. So I want to help out, so I'm cutting down the prices. And if you want to join, go to the AB Prime or subscription area at my website, or you can find it too on Patreon. So that's it. I don't want to talk too much. As I say, enough of my drivel. Let's get to this uh, very special show, which I think you'll find very rewarding. But as always, let me know your thoughts. We need this Gnosis more than ever, needless to say, in these Gnostic times, this Philip K. Dick world, and yes, this Age of Hermes. So thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Let us to our interview first with Dr. David Litwa on The Evil Creator. Welcome, everybody, to the Aeon Byte interview, a very special show today. And we have the honor of having Dr. M. David Litwa to discuss his book, The Evil Creator God, Origins of an Early Christian Idea. David, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show, finally coming on the show. It's really very excited about talking to you. 
Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Miguel Vance. It's great to be here. Um, I, I've been waiting for this for a long time. Uh, it's great to be in the virtual Alexandria. I just actually finished a book on Alexandria, um, Earliest Christianity in Alexandria, so I'm very pumped. I've got my schedule back. Uh, I can breathe a little bit, so it's so great to be here with you. Wow, very excited about this book. I'm sure can't wait to hear all about the Carpocratians, Basilides, and all those. What a fascinating <laughs> place. I'm sure you wish sometimes you can get into a, a TARDIS and go back to those, just stay in that city for a few days at a, you know, a hotel or something like that. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I plan to, but yes, what would be best is a time machine, actually, to go back to the second century. <laughs> a lot going on there. A lot of excitement going on. And with us, too, always excited, too, to have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, can't wait to hear about the evil creator. wonder who created evil. Did the creator create evil and then become evil? Or oh, Well, maybe we'll find out. <laughs> yeah the great question people have been struggling with for struggling with for thousands of years and even today so but uh we're, yeah. we're gonna get a unique take because uh david uh, the audience might be thinking ah the evil creator god this is obviously sophia channeling you this is sophia's tell all book about her naughty son the ceo of this universe who's mismanaging the cosmos and everything else, but your book is, uh, might say, more nuanced. It's not exactly just all about Yaldabaoth, right? Uh, maybe let the audience tell us about your book, the thesis. Yeah, well, I, it's that's a really important point. So, first of all, it's the evil creator, not the evil creator God, because they uh, they don't view him as the true God. So that's that's really important. The they is all various types of Christians. So it's not just Sethians, right? So Sethians have uh, Yaldabao, and they've got the, the Fall of Wisdom. But actually, the real inventors of the evil creator among Christians appear to be even earlier groups. And I'm thinking specifically of Marcion. And I'm thinking of those groups that later came to be called Aphite, uh, they didn't call themselves Aphite in the second century, but by the third century, they had their own very distinctive uh, mythology. And then there's also uh, a so-called Fibionite group that I look at. So it, it's really it's all it's all Christians sort of getting getting together. And as a scholar, I was really interested in this question because, you know, sometimes and I, I know people have various views of Gnosticism, but some people think it's like a separate religion from, from Christianity. And I, I really think that, that um, from what I can see, the people inventing the idea of, of the evil creator are all Christians. And, you know, we're, we're so indoctrinated uh, by the so-called Judeo-Christian tradition to view the creator as good, that it's really hard to contemplate um, the the other side and, and it's really mind-boggling to think that christians are, are the inventors of this idea so the really central question of the book is why did they do that why why did some christians hate the creator we've been all trained that they all you know came from judaism and and judaism you know is is like wow 
we love the creator. And in fact, I mean, the, the goodness of the creator is supposedly even more important than his oneness. And so how how is it that early Christians get to the point where they seem to hate the creator? They want to they think the creator is out to destroy them. They think that, you know, the world is designed in such a way as to keep us in, in prison. And that's that seems radical. So that's really what I what I came to explore uh, in the book. Wonderful. But <clears throat> excuse me. Wasn't this question already in the air? Or uh, I remember reading Yuan Kuliano, I think it's Tree of Gnosis, where he talks about how the mind is a binary, uh, zeros and one. And if you're going to have mainstream, the world is good, you're always going to get, you know, the Buddhists and others. Maya, we got to get out of this universe. It's almost, you might say Gnosticism was inevitable. And for leading to Judaism, it almost had to have, or through Judaism, it almost seemed inevitable because, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sort of speculating here. You've had a Zoroastrianism sort of takes care of the animus Hebrew mentality. Plato is saying, well, you know, and the philosophers, uh, there's an ultimate good. So, of course, there, you know, people are like, well, we can't blame the ultimate good. So let's start blaming the managerial class instead of the CEO. That's when you get the book of Enoch and Paul's talking about angels and Simon Magus is talking about angels. So you and obviously the the God of Israel is not very good when it comes to powerful empires like the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Greeks, Romans. So you have all this, you might say, moving at once. So it almost wouldn't it make sense that they would say maybe the God of Israel or the God of the Hebrew Bible is just a lesser God. It would have been too hard to pivot that way. <laughs> right. No, this is super. So there's a lot of moving parts here. And I, I guess I should clarify my position. So in the history of religions, yes, it's absolutely clear that any particular religion could have an evil creator idea. Uh, so yes, you, we can think of Ahriman in, in Persian or, or Zoroastrian theology. And we can think I focus on Set, uh, which are Set uh, in Egyptian theology, who is the the <laughs> well, they thought of him as the donkey headed God. But actually, we don't exactly know what animal he represents, but he's on the he's on the, the cover. Um, and I'm sure uh, your viewers are familiar with with his images, if not Google Seth and Egyptian mythology and check out all the cool images. But. So that's yeah, that's the primeval evil god, and so and so yes, the idea of there being an, an evil creator or evil deities that's hackneyed and common, and and a possibility that can arise anywhere. But then the real the nitty gritty historical question is why did Christians think the Judean deity was evil? What were the, what were the kind of historical processes that led up to that? And so in chapter one. I, I bring us back to uh, Egypt, and it turns out that, you know, Jews would never have supported, okay, their God being evil. But native Egyptians and, and Greeks and Romans, some of them definitely did think the Judean God was evil, and they did so at least two to three hundred years before Jesus was actually born. And they did so in Egypt, where you have, where you got a huge influx of, of Jewish uh, 
uh, incomers, uh, basically migrants, came into Alexandria. They are taking over, you know, they're a huge part of that cultural confluence in Alexandria. And they begin telling, you know, their story and their salvation myth is an escape from Egypt with the 10 plagues and the killing of the firstborn and the horrible things that happens to all of Egypt, you know, to the benefit of, of the Jews. And so there's mythology, Jewish mythology, and then there's counter mythology that pushes against the Jewish and tries Jewish myth and tries to revise the Exodus story. And the purveyors of this counter mythology are, uh, are essentially Hellenized Egyptian priests, like people like Manetho uh, and, and later, who say, actually, you know, the true deity that these Jews worship is Seth. And I'll tell you why. All these plagues that he inflicts on our population, you know, on the native Egyptians, you know. I mean, what's so sick about all this is that these people have a myth in which they are saved and we are damned, we meaning Egyptians. And, you know, their God turns our sacred river into a bloodbath, literally. And that's Seth, right? Why is that Seth? Because Seth is red, right? So when you have the whole, the, the life-giving Nile, which is worshipped as a deity, turn to blood and become this source of death. Um, it, I mean, every Egyptian must have shuddered to hear this terrible mythology. And then this God strikes them with darkness, another sign of Seth. This God strikes them with plague, all different kinds of plagues, another sign of Seth, their evil deity. And then this deity just goes ahead and kills every firstborn Egyptian, which is mindless and senseless evil. Okay, so this is myth, the Exodus myth, and then counter myth. The counter myth says, you guys didn't get out here with the help of Yahweh. You guys got out of Egypt with the help of an evil God whom we've known for thousands of years before Yahweh. His name is Seth. And you are confused about who you worship. You don't worship some, obviously, you know, God on a Mount Sinai sitting there with a great, you know, white golden beard and, you know, bushy eyebrows. You worship a donkey-handed fiend and you simply don't know it, right? So this mythology that actually the secret identity of Yahweh is Seth, the evil deity that the Egyptians have known for thousands of years. That mythology predates Christianity and then feeds into the earliest uh, recoverable early Christian theology in Egypt, because our earliest Christian speculative theologians in Egypt are people like Vasilides, Car Carpocrates, uh, uh, Prodicus, and Valentinus, of course. And all of these guys, every single one of them, doesn't view the Judean deity as the true deity. Every single one of them. So the earliest recoverable theology in Alexandria is the theology which says, we never worship the Judean deity. We don't know who that dude is. He <laughs> is the managerial class. He is a renegade angel. He's the guy causing all these wars, you know, with the Judean war in 70, the Diaspora revolt in 115, the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135. He's the guy behind all that. He's a megalomaniac. We never were part and parcel to that. And why would Alexandrian theologians want to take this move? 
Well, it's because just like Christians today, they try to make bridges with the power brokers. And let's face it, the Jews in 117, we know, are completely wiped out because there's this massive rebellion. And although some of the Jewish community survives, thousands upon thousands of Jews are massacred in the streets of Alexandria. But all of this is built up since about 38, right? The year 38, where Philo describes essentially the first pogrom, where thousands upon thousands of Jews are killed then. So between 38 and about 117, when the Jewish population of Alexandria is decimated, there's this buildup of anti-Jewish sentiment. And it, 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 that's exactly when Christianity grew in Egypt. So what Egypt is offering is a whole new vision of what Christian theology is, what Alexandria is offering. And if Alexandria had won and not Rome, everything would be different. You know, I mean, everything would be different. We would not be worshiping the Hebrew God. We would not even be calling him God. That's the message. Yeah, we might have been uh, latched on to Hermes Trismegistus as some Christians tried. So, uh, yeah, and your book makes a really excellent case that I haven't heard before. For example, you talk about uh, so much evidence, Dave. You talk about uh, Yao in Egyptian is a word for donkey. They had a, what a, a donkey-headed deity with snake legs. I'm sure that's like Abraxas's younger loser brother that doesn't get invited to parties. Uh, so there's all this, there's all this, uh, evidence. And of course, beyond that, you have the idea of, uh, the Greeks tying in their gods for, you know, Hermes is Thoth and so forth. So they thought Typhon is Seth and Seth is the God of the desert and the storm. So he kind of fits the template of Yahweh, who's also like Baal. He's a storm God and a desert God. So all of this evidence was, uh, was out there and it was, and made sense. Precisely. Actually, it's a little bit funny because the, here you can see the the Egyptian native Coptic speakers having fun because, yeah, the donkey bray mm. is we say ia ia. They say yo yo. So, um. <laughs> and and the way you pronounce that that uh, Yahweh's name in in Greek, that Yoda Alpha Omega, it, it's not yao. It's yao. So. So the Egyptians heard yo, yo, which is the donkey bray, when the Jews, you know, would refer to their deity as yao. And so that, that's really, and then they made fun of that. And they said, I mean, they, they played with the etymologies. But it's hilarious when you think of it, because when Egyptians heard the name of Yahweh in, in, in Greek, they thought immediately of the donkey. And that became, so this god eventually gets associated, and of course Seth is the shadow god of Egypt. So they had a template, and this even appears in text, doesn't it, David? You talk about the uh, the birth of Mary, where, what, Zechariah goes to the temple, and he opens the temple, and what does he see? Donkey-headed god, isn't that what he saw? Exactly, yeah. So we, we have probably a second century text called the birth of Mary, which is contemporaneous with uh, other versions of the, the birth of Mary. But in this version, uh, Zechariah, which is taken from, from Luke uh, chapter one, goes into the temple and he thinks he's going to, you know, find in the Holy of Holies, the uh, 
nothing, basically, because you expect to find absolutely nothing because it's absolutely bare and empty because God does not have a name or a form. And when he goes in there, it's, it's, it's dark, it's cloudy, uh, it's a bit misty. And, you know, he is himself pouring out this incense from his incense uh, contraption. And out of that cloud, out of that incense cloud, he sees this shadow of a gigantic man with a ferocious, evil-looking donkey head. And he screams, and he wants to scream. He wants to run out of the temple to the Jews who are worshiping there and say, you know, what are you worshiping? But the donkey-headed God seals his lips. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Why do you think that, for example, the Sethians and some of the other Gnostic groups went with, uh, as April Deconic talks about in the 13th Apostle, they went with the Egyptian god Shernubis as their sort of uh, CGI guy, you know, the lion head and the dragon body. Why do you think they, they could have gone easily with the donkey-headed monster? Although you, uh, you, they are archons with donkey heads, so you do, you do cover that. Well, sure. I, I mean, essentially, I, I, I do think that in the, in the earliest period, they went with the S-headed deity. But then, of course, as, as, things, man, as things went on in time, um, the Christian Gnostics began to, like so many other Christians, make fun of the other Egyptian deities, which are all animal-headed. So, yes, in the Apocryphon of John, you have the seven archons. Uh, the, and then in the Ophite diagram in Origin, you have seven archons. They all have animal heads, different animal heads. And uh, so, so yes, Yaldabao, it ends up looking like a, a lion-headed snake. Uh, that's at least the version in uh, Codex 2. And uh, that lion-headed snake, though, it's specifically said that he manifests all the forms of the lower archon. So he's, he's, he's morphing. He's a hybrid being. So, you know, when you see lower down the donkey-headed archon, Yaldabaoth is also that. And he's the cat-headed and he's the, you know, alligator-headed. I mean, what, whatever else is there. <laughs> so that's that's what's going on, I think. Um, it's it's a sort of a both-end situation. But but it's a great it's it's a great indication that yes, we're we're dealing with native Egyptian uh counter mythology. So the Jews have their mythology, then there's a counter mythology of the Egyptians, and then there's a counter counter mythology of the Christians. <laughs> and they're all <laughs> they're all speaking to each other. Yeah, got to make your a better James Bond villain each time you write your own gospel. And yeah, I think it was Einar Thomason said in his book, but and he said about the Valentinians that there is no multitude of archons. It's all yelled about and he can manifest where he wants, but kind of very Hindu, if you would, or in the Matrix where the agents can just appear where they want to be or yelled about, like you said, he can be, he is every one of these faces. So um Although I've always wondered about the uh, the Archon of Desire, Yoko. That's always perplexed me why it had to be Yoko. But I don't know if you've wondered about that, too. It's a joke. but <laughs> uh, Yeah. I, well, yeah. There's, so there's lots of variations on the Yao and Yaldaveot and, and you. And they, they play with this. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, a multitude, a multitude of Archons. 
And uh, I guess we would probably now, since we've talked about Seth and how this definitely gave the Christians the ability. In fact, I want to, so the audience understands the thesis of your book. Let me please quote you, because I think that this really makes sense. And you write, whatever its truth value, Marcionite, Fibionite, and Sethian Christian teaching, etc., reminds us that in the struggle to generate an ethical and informed culture, the Bible need not be utterly rejected, but reframed. It is reframed simply by viewing it not as the word of the potentially evil creator, but as a historical expression of thoughts about a very particular deity at discrete times and in different locales of the Mediterranean basin. So that's it. They were simply trying to reframe the Bible and find their place in the place of the Hebrew Bible in their new dispensation, if you would. They weren't, uh, it's not as radical as it sounds. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so part one of the book deals with, uh, deals with the Fibionite stuff um, and, and the Egyptian mythology and, and uh, also uh, John 8, 44. Um, how you can get what I call negative demiurgy or the view of the evil creator from, from John reading John. And, um, and then in the second part of the book, which is actually most of it, I talk about Marcion and early Marcion, I thought. So there's, there's multiple vectors, Christian vectors into the evil creator idea. And they definitely, the, the, the major thesis of the book is yes, they are primarily Okay, there's the Egyptian mythology stuff, but primarily they are simply reading the Septuagint, that is their <laughs> their Bibles, um, and saying, who the heck is this monster? Uh, and, 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 and in the last chapter, I, I basically say, but this, you know, this experiment has been repeated a thousand times, you know, because people today pick up the Bible and have the same same reaction that they just want to throw up when they uh, meet the actual, you know, deity uh, there. So there you go. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking uh, the testimony of truth and how it talks about the Garden of Eden, how Adam couldn't recognize or Yahweh couldn't recognize Adam. I was like, God. It's almost as Christopher Hitchens had gone back in time to the second century and written this <laughs> stuff because it's this sort exactly. of modern mocking of these stories. But at the same time, I was like, well, couldn't they have been like Augustine or Valentinus who said, well, we're just going to be middle Platonists and everything's uber allegorical, everything's symbolical. Every, you know, Philo of Alexandria does it. The Kabbalists do it. We do it with Greek mythology. They, they just decided to call, you know, the, we're going to take a stance that this guy is just not a good God instead of going all allegorical and symbolical. Yeah, well, that that's true. So so definitely Marcin, he's he's not in the Alexandrian tradition and he he reads uh, what we call the Old Testament just as history, just as a, a record of what happened. I mean, it's a, it's a somewhat distorted record, but he he reads it sort of like a modern fundamentalist, like you, th this actually happened. God really did kill all these people. Uh, God really did start all these wars and he really did command genocide. And he really, really did send she bears in order to kill, you know, young boys between ages four and 10. And he really did plague David 
and give him a choice of what torture device he's going to use. <laughs> so, and he really did do all these things. And then Marcion just says, um, okay, folks, uh, let's just call a spade a spade here. But but yeah, it, it's really amazing when when you, you know, give Marcion his, his fair share and, and, you know, read with him that, he can he can still this very day deconstruct all that traditional apparatus, which causes you know modern uh, Christians and sometimes many non Christians sometimes atheists are in, they're in the same they're assuming the same Judean Judeo Christian tradition, which is trying to protect protect the Hebrew Lord, I'll just call him Lord, from uh, cushion him buffer him from any uh, ethical critique. And, and usually, you know, the, the storyline is, well, he's just as well as uh, as good. So, you know, if he's just, he can kill a bunch of people. Uh, <laughs> and it, but but yeah, I mean, there are these very complex apologetical apparatus that had been built around this person, this Lord, who's, you know, you know, says that he's the only true God. And and so that's how even atheists read him today and they they just they say well he he just doesn't exist but they still accept that a christian apologetical line that well he must be good but early christians who didn't you know grow up out of say the what we call the jewish tradition they never assumed that he was god and they never assumed that he was good and this is why i disagree with those who say that you know so-called gnostics are trying to split the hebrew deity into something good and, and bad no they never assumed he was a deity i mean we grow up reading the old testament before the new testament they didn't um it, i mean it, it's it's we have to wipe the slate clean when we think about what actual Christians were thinking and doing in uh, early Alexandria and elsewhere. Yeah, indeed. What do you think, Vance? Any questions or what do you think so far? Yeah. You know, I always thought um, my impression after, you know, whatever exposure I've had to the old New Testament is that the Jews didn't really think that um, their, you know, that Yahweh was their, you know, their Lord was good, per se. They may have said that, but I so I think of it like the mafia, you know, the protection rackets where, you know, he, he got him out of Egypt, right? And he let him win the wars, but uh, he did a lot of bad stuff to them too. You know, they're like pestilence and wandering the desert and all those other things. So I think they were cowed by, by him, if you could believe the Old Testament. So I don't even think that, you know, the good stuff was probably like, look at the book of Job, right? What can what 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 do you think about that the the book of Job and and how that relates because I think that pretty much exposes if it was a real entity what what the nature of of the entity really was didn't care about people he just cared about his real estate real estate was important right and he 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 was a strategic player and he used the Jewish population to conquer and spread his influence and he cowed them so. That's kind of a evil type of thing, yeah. What, what, yeah what's your thing about Zeus or other the other tribal gods? Yeah, I mean, Job is never Job is never appealed to. It, it just doesn't, you know. We think of the Old Testament as a sort of bounded book, but Job it really never registered with these early Christians. They uh, 
if we can trace where Marcin's pointing to, he's pointing to things like Genesis uh, 3, the so-called fall in the garden, he's, which is also in Testimony of Truth. He's, he's pointing to the flood. He's pointing to the she-bears uh, in uh, Kings. Um, he's uh, pointing to, yeah, plagues and wars, as, as you mentioned. Uh, those, those more firm, like Old Testament, you know, historical books, in quotes. So that's where he likes to, to pick his information. And, and Apelles did, did even a better job. And Apelles is Marcin's disciple who's working in Alexandria in the late second century. And, you know, un unfortunately, we don't have his, it's a multi-volume work called The Syllogisms, where he just deconstructs everything in what we consider to be the, the Hebrew Bible scared the orthodox so much that really that we don't even have that book anymore uh we don't even <laughs> we, i mean we have six, six allusions to it but that's it not even a genuine excerpt so yeah th this is an ideological thing and and you're absolutely right you know it's it's really the platonists who are to blame okay for saying that the god is good right um yeah <laughs> but, but that was the dominant theology of of the second century the, you know that line in the republic where or sorry in the timaeus where where uh, plato has timaeus say you know what about the creator well he was good ain agathos and that's the fundamental premise that begins the entire myth he was good and because he was good he created in this way and then plato at least in the Timaeus, really has has actually some some difficulty explaining real hardcore radical evil, and later Platonists had to yeah limit it to the demonic realm. But you even had hardcore Platonists saying that daimones, uh, which became Christian demons, were they weren't really evil; they were just mischievous. So they they really struggled with this. They did. And and but Marcion doesn't pull any punches. You know this <laughs> Hebrew this Hebrew Lord is an absolute. Uh, he's a demon and, and he's evil. Now th there was a question here. If I I hope I'm not jumping the gun, Miguel. But yes, later Marcionites did adjust their line and say that well he might be just, and that, so they took they took a Valentinian line. Okay, which the Valentinians, you know, pride in themselves not not taking Marcion's extremism. And so later Marcins like Apelles were prepared to say that, well, I, we accepted that in some respects his, he is just. But even Marcin said that this justice is just simply the justice of the Hebrew, Hebrew Lord is just a, another manifestation of evil. It's just like mafia justice. Uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's like uh, the Falcone character, if you've watched the new Batman. I mean, it's exactly that mafia justice where it, he he does you know you know vengeance he commits vengeance against his opponents but all that he's really trying to do is just stay in power and keep the system of manipulation in place that's all that's what justice does that's all justice of the hebrew lord is exactly no. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, fascinating dialogues that they were happening. So the other part of your book, which I think is also very and very enlightening, is the idea, as you were talking about, John, what, 844, when, and of course, correct my storytelling, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're having an argument and Jesus says, the texts we have say, you know, you are of your father, the devil, but there are earlier texts that say, you are of the father 
the father of the devil. In other words, there's another God. Jesus is saying that they are in control of whoever is on top of the devil, the demiurge, and so forth. And this really affected a lot of Christians afterwards, didn't it? It was very telling. Well, it, it's it's actually not a different manuscript reading. All the manuscripts basically say the same thing. It's just a different reading of the the grammar. So, um, and and you know, so the Greek is "who may sect patras tu diavalu," which usually would would mean "you are from the father of the devil." Uh, but all English translations, all of them. Every single one of them <laughs> say you are from your father, comma, the devil. So it's it's an reading an apposition. Um, and that's just not how early Christians read that text. I mean, native Greek speakers didn't didn't take it in that that way, which is what's so disturbing about modern Bibles and Bible translations and uh, it's 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 disturbing and sickening actually, because it, it's actually two points in John eight forty four where you have to distinguish uh, the Judean uh, or the devil from from his father, and at the end of it also that he is a liar and his father too is what is, is what the Greek says, but uh, in all in, virtually all English translations it, at the end of John eight forty four it's you know he is a liar and the father of it. Um. And uh, I, I mean, it, it boggles the mind. But anyway, so early Christians read this text as, um, yeah, uh, not all of them, but many of them. And I uh, uh, read this as saying that, that uh, yes, the, the Jews, they aren't children of the devil. You know, so all of these books that have been written against, you know, Christian anti-Semitism are in some ways wrongheaded because Jesus actually never said that the Jews were children of the devil. I mean, if he did say that, yes, then we would definitely have to probably call him anti-Jew-Jewish at, at the very least, mm -hmm. <laughs> which would throw into question what we mean by Jesus the Jew. But right. at any rate, he didn't actually said that. He's, he said probably that they are from the father of the devil. Now, that's not much better ethically okay so <laughs> just kicking the can a little bit yeah it, it, so yeah it, it's just deferring the point but but basically yes it, the devil has a father okay and then and then your your logical question is well who's the father of the devil well it's the same dude that the jews are referring to they're saying at one point they say to jesus you know no Ab uh, abraham's our father and then jesus says well if abraham was your father then you would have accepted me and they're like Pfft talking about god is our father we have one father god that is the being we call theos and it's that being that jesus says that's the father of the devil your god with your law and he uses that pronoun your second person plural your law i do not follow your god is the father of the devil and that shot that is so shocking that they they pick up uh, stones. So is the father of the devil, who is that? Well, that's got to be the creator character. I mean, the devil doesn't come out of nowhere. By the second century, Christians have already determined the foundation myth that, you know, God created the devil. His name was Lucifer. And then he fell because he wouldn't worship Adam. And uh, there you go. Uh, then we got the devil. So it's not like the devil appears out of 
you know, it's not like yin and yang that he that he appears out of some dark realm. No, I mean, he comes from God. Everybody knows he comes from God. Everybody knows that the devil's father is the creator. He's just the renegade son. Yeah, and don't even as you write, David, don't some like the the paradics and some others even say that there's a grandfather involved. I mean, this is a whole family and lineage. There's a God above God the, above the devil. Yeah, yeah. So devil's it, all the way up, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Sopranos. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, and and it really doesn't. I mean, so you you can actually see uh, like. Uh, a whole genealogy here, like a mini family tree here. And that, that is actually how some Christians read it. So you've got like a grandfather, a father, and then the devil. Um, but yeah, I mean, yes, it, the point is that the grandfather and the father of the devil act just like the devil. I mean, they're all out to kill Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this is the one fundamental point, you know, where Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples in John 14. And he says, you know, the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world is being driven out. I've I've gotten rid of him. And everyone's like, well, he must be referring to the devil. But is the devil really the ruler of this world? I mean, wouldn't that just much more naturally refer to the creator? And <laughs> I mean, he's the guy who built this place. So isn't he the guy who rules it? So why do we think that he's referring to, to the devil? Well, it's that Christian apologetical uh, move that says, well, the devil is bad, but God is good, you know. And we can preserve the goodness of the creator if we just blame all the bad stuff on the devil and us. But, you know, that's just not what the Bible says. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Scapegoat, you, right? Goats yeah. are associated with the devil and he's a scapegoat for God. And as you say, David, Martin himself said, no, it was not the Jews who killed Jesus. It was not the Romans. This is all the creator God, the creator, the Tony Soprano. He's the one to blame. Exactly. And that's the shiver that sends a spine down every religious believer today, because that's something that is going to powerfully motivate Christians to think that the creator is evil. Because if you think of the worst possible sin, you know, you think of Dante's Inferno. Well, the devil is chewing up Judas Iscariot right now in his mouth, according mm-hmm. to Dante. And Cassius he, and Brutus. <laughs> and Cassius and Brutus, because they betrayed, or because Judas betrayed Jesus. So he's getting eaten alive right now all for eternity, okay? So what's the worst possible sin that a Christian imagination can imagine? Well, it it is that, that, that you think God, you think the creator killed Jesus. And and that act of killing Jesus, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. And then, you know, when you figure out, you know, it, it does, it, it reminds me of the new Batman film, because when you figure out that it's, it's not these lower managerial people who are killing, doing the killing, right? They're just working for the guy upstairs, right? <laughs> so it, it's, I mean, yes, so they don't blame the Jews. Marcin doesn't blame the Jews. The Jews are just pawns, the Romans are even more ridiculous pawns, you know. So, so the, all this anti-Semitic reading in the New Testament—it's barely necessary. If we were Marcionite, we would, you know, we would not view it that way. We would not even have these these problems, which led to the Holocaust. But the whole thing here is that you have a case where 
who is really the one orchestrating the death of Jesus, who's working behind the scenes, doesn't want to be noticed, you know, the Al Capone, the, the Falcone mafia boss character. That's Yahweh. That's the dude. And that's why these Christians can't accept that he is the father of Jesus Christ. It is the only logical deduction. If he killed Jesus, okay, there's no going back here, folks. You don't just kill Jesus. That's the whole point of the religion. I mean, it, it's sick. It's sick for you to believe that the creator is good. It, it's absolutely sick. He killed Jesus, cursed him, did all these terrible things. I mean, it's right there staring you in the face, but Marcion is one of the very few bold exegetes able just to throw this and give it an exclamation point and don't let people turn their heads in some apologetic direction. Well said. And God, if I, when I watch the Batman with my kids, I'm not going to watch it the same way. Like, hey kids, that's God. <laughs> that's a great, <laughs> but, but, uh, so why don't we talk about Paul? How does Paul play into us? Because yes, obviously Paul gives a lot of the furniture to later Sethians and Valentinians, the God of this world, the archons, the powers and principalities. But Paul still sees Yahweh, the creator, as ultimately benign. He's just unknown. We, everybody's hidden, and these angels have put a veil over Moses and all that. You know, they've created this fog like in the gospel of truth. So how does Paul play into the evil creator ideas of your book? Well, Paul definitely is is food for thought. Um, and, you know, some in the mid 20th century wanted to argue that Paul was a Gnostic, but it's probably uh, probably not not the case. He, he doesn't think that the creator is evil. Now, he may be completely deluded. Maybe he should have. But but he he doesn't. Um, he's always very, very typical of Orthodox Judaism and Christianity today. He's always looking for a reason to uh, blame uh, humanity. Now, interestingly, he does think that God is full of wrath. You know, that famous line in Romans 118, you know, where, where the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all doers of godlessness, you know, and he just goes on this rant and tirade. That word wrath is orgy. You know, it's a powerful world, word. It becomes orgy. Uh, mm. But it, it's like this, it, it, it's like this indescribably violent, mindless anger that is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. And so, yes, Paul's God is that uncontrollable Hebrew deity who's who's not unambiguously, you know, platonically good. No, I mean, he's friggin' angry. I mean, for, to, to speak in, in slang, you know, <laughs> he is unbelievably angry at anybody who does things that he doesn't think is right, right? And, and this, again, that's the mafia justice working through here. And yes, Paul does think, you know, that angels had a hand in giving the law at Sinai in Galatians 3.13. But the passage that I focus, is, focus on, uh, there's several. Uh, they're the ones that I can document where Marcion was looking. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just pulling these out of my uh, head. I'm actually looking at the remains of what Marcion, and I'm trying to see where he's reading Paul and where are the pressure points. Okay. So the pressure points that I use are uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which is that the God of this world uh, has blinded the minds 
of unbelievers. So he's whoever this God is, he's a blinder. And uh, the uh, Colossians and Ephesians, where we have Christ destroying the law. Well, if he destroyed the law, uh, the law must not have been that good, right? And the law is written, yes, by Moses, but the ultimate dude who came up with this is, yeah, the Hebrew Yahweh, right? And then finally, Galatians 3.13, the curse of the creator, where I, I think I mentioned this briefly, where Paul says, yeah, Jesus just was totally cursed by the creator. Everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God, right? Uh, meaning the Hebrew Lord. So uh, Jesus is cursed, you know, in, in, and you have to then ask yourself the logical questions, uh, as Marcion did. Well, is a good God capable of cursing people? I mean, let's just be frank here, folks. Cursing is one of the most common magical actions where you, you know, write a, a, a curse tablet, you know, etch it in, in lead and throw it down a well, praying for your enemy to be utterly destroyed. I mean, a curse is what many are saying under their breaths at Putin today. You know, I mean, it's it's this mindless wrath, you know, wanting to destroy your enemy, but you can't. Okay. I mean, you would send a nuclear bomb in his direction, but all you can do is send that lead tablet down to the realm of the dead and hope that the demons do the work for you. So that's what a curse is. And that's what the Hebrew deity, so-called deity, does to Jesus. So this is really, this is really Marcion. It's really about reconstructing what Marcion thought when he was reading these documents. And it's easy to say, and of course, apologists will say that, that you know, Marcion, Somehow, some way, he had the idea of the evil creator before he started reading Paul. No, no, that's not the case. Not at all, in my opinion. He read Paul, and then he came up with the idea of the evil creator. And then he went back to the Old Testament and found out, you know, the shit has really hit the fan. You know, I mean... Holy smokes, I've got data for this guy being absolutely evil. But that's where it starts. It starts with Paul. And all the all you know, all the modern readers of Paul who just don't see this, right, is is partly because we are uh, prisoners of our own tradition. Prisoners of a tradition that is two thousand years old, which has chained the mind, chained the very imagination from ever you know, creeping toward the direction that there's something wrong with God. That's where the problem is. What tells you that uh, Marcion uh, read Paul first, uh, as opposed to the uh, Old Testament? That's an educated guess. Okay, so as a scholar, all I can do in the book and all that I do in the book is just show how Marcion read Paul. But what we do know about Marcion is that the Septuagint was never really his Bible, okay? Marcion grew up in Pontus, and so we can't assume that, you know, he even knew the Septuagint or even knew uh, what we call the Old Testament, okay? We don't know what he had, but we know what he produced, and he produced the first edition of what he considered to be Christian scriptures, and that was one single gospel, which I think is an early form of Luke, and then... Um, 10 Pauline letters. That's what was scripture for him. And that it was scripture for him because that's what was most he was most familiar with. 
So Marcion had a prehistory before he went to Rome in the 140s. He was in Asia Minor and he had read Paul all his life. And then when he comes to Rome and other places, he sees Christians that are viewing uh, the Septuagint as scripture, as equal with Paul and equal with the gospel. And I think Marcion is honestly surprised by that. And then he has to go back and read up on the Septuagint and he's horrified. He's absolutely horrified. Uh, interesting point, too, as you mentioned, David, that the book of Enoch also talks about the God of this world as the creator God, Yahweh. So Paul's using, you wondered, is Paul familiar with this terminology in Enoch or how he might have known? But uh, he knows this sort of vibe of fallen angels and all that good stuff. Yeah, I think it's safe to say, I mean, everybody's familiar with Enoch in the first and second century, definitely. Um, Enoch is quoted as scripture in the letter to Jude, uh, you know, without even blinking. So uh, definitely know, I definitely think Paul knew it. But but that all that just goes to show because there's this apologetic knee jerk reaction, because if you if you tell people, well, the God of this world blinds people, they're like, they do the same thing that they do in John. They say, oh, well, that's not God. That's uh, that's the devil. Right. That the devil is just called the God of this world. And then you ask them, well, why did he call him God then? And they're like, well, you know, I mean, it's a it's a metaphor. You know, it's, it's cute. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, there you go. Um, but, you know, it's because the devil sort of thinks he's in charge. Therefore, he can be called God. But Paul never calls the devil God anywhere else. Nobody calls the devil God anywhere else. And then when you go back and look at the usage of this term, God of this world, and you can just, you know, put the phrase in uh, the Greek search engines and just see where this verse, where this phrase has popped up uh, in the three places that it, it does. And there's not there's not an exact match because there's uh, there's an extra Greek particle in there. But the closest matches that we have, they all refer to the Judean Lord. They don't refer to El Diablo. <laughs> El Diablo. <laughs> Sorry, my Spanish always uses can use some work. <laughs> oh, Nick, yeah. So, um, and as we get as we're getting closer to the end of the interview, of course, I, I wanted to, if you could in, indulge me with a couple of quick questions. But uh, uh, and I, I ask this to a lot of scholars because it's, it's just fascinating. But where do you stand? Are you comfortable using the word Gnostic and Gnosticism? Obviously, you've got. Uh, you know, Williams and Karen King and Elaine Pagels on one side, and then you have obviously Birger Pearson and Dylan Burns on one side, and then of course you've got sort of the middle path with David Brackey saying, well, the Sethians are the Gnostics, let's just, you know, Bentley Layton too. Where do you stand on this, David? Yeah, I just wrote an article against the Layton Brackey hypothesis. Oh, wow. uh, I don't I don't I don't credit it. Um, and, uh, I also am skeptical of those who want to use Gnostic or Gnosticism as a macro category. So just this year, I published this book called Found Christianities. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I go through and I go through every single, almost every single character in the second century who's been called Gnostic. And so my, my attitude is that, um, Actually, several 
people in the second century called themselves Gnostic. And none of them meant that as a technical term. Okay, so Carpocratians are a great example. Marcelina, uh, right? That's the one I can. Marcelina, yeah, Marcelina uh, and Prodicus and Clement of Alexandria, and um, we've got a reference to uh, Gnostics in the Nascenes. We've got Celsus saying that there's a that there's a Christian group that says that they're Gnostics. So, what do they mean by that? Well, some, I mean, Brakey and uh, who's following Leighton wants to say, well, it's a very specialized technical term for the Sethians, but no, it's not because you've got at least six, possibly seven other groups who are saying, no, we're Gnostics. Um, so, they, so they can't be using that as their team term, you know. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> you know, like their official registered name. You know, here's the trademark. Um, I mean, they're all using that term because it just means, you know, spiritual knower, knower of enlightened one. You know, uh, some some other uh, paraphrase would be fine. It's just somebody who knows, usually that esoteric, deep, deep wisdom. Okay, so it's it's commonplace. Okay, so that's the first thing to note. But then, if you want to call everybody Gnostic, that I, that I find problematic too, because in order to do good history, in my opinion, you've got to be as specific as possible, right? Uh, if we know that the use of that adjective is sort of hackneyed, um, then it's not really doing the work that we, uh, you know that we make it do in in the modern period, you know, because it used to be before Michael Williams, you know, everybody had like a list of like 20 different things. Well, if you're Gnostic, well, you must, the Messina you, must group, the world, huh? yeah. you must hate the body. You must hate yourself. I mean, um, and, and then it fell into like this Christian apologist, you know, the Christian apologist could then come in and say, ah, you know, Gnostic, bad, bad, bad. You know, Most. I mean, because, because Karen King just made this great point. I mean, it just for a Christian apologist, all that Gnostic means is heretic, and that's all it ever meant to Irenaeus and company. Okay, so I, I'm not out to redeem the term. I don't think that we need to. I think that we need simply to be as specific as possible. So the Carpocratians are the Carpocratians. Okay, if you want to call them Carpocratian Gnostics. Be my guest, but it's fluff, okay? They're just, they're carbocrations. They're Valentinians, they're Vesladeans, there are Protikans, okay? And all of these people are Christian groups, and we can refer to them very specifically. Same thing with Marcionites, okay? They, they never fitted the category of Gnostics, so they were always the outliers. But we ought to call Sethians Sethians, um, and uh, that's my view. So I, I, I guess I agree with Dylan there. Well, I, I'm in partial agreement. Um, he so, thinks it's useful. Gnosticism yeah, he, th he thinks, yeah, the overall category is useful. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't deny that that point entirely. I just think that in order to do the best kind of historical work, we need to be as specific as possible. So we know that they're specific groups and they all have different beliefs. And let's just not try to like amalgamate them and fuse them together because it's already difficult enough for the average Joe on the street who hasn't really studied this material just to like group them together and like fuse them and, and mix up what Carpocrity says and Valentinus says and what Marcion says and what the Sethians say, you know, it's hard keeping them together. So let's just, you know, 
let's just distinguish them, first of all, and, and be as specific as possible. And then later, if we want to come back to that macro category, let's think of something that doesn't come up with all the heresiological baggage, right? Um, and I, Michael Williams proposed um, biblical demiurgy. I'm proposing negative demiurgy. Mm -hmm. Okay, because because biblical demiurgy is, is not specific enough. It has to be negative demiurgy for you to be in a camp. Okay, well, I would call it the negative demiurgical camp. That is those Christians, the Protestants, the Valentinians, the Corporations, the Thessalonians, who think that the creator is actually evil. That's the macro category that I would be happy to work with. No, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, Justin Martyr did call Jesus the demiurge, uh, the demi or Jesus was the demiurge of God or something like that. So, yeah, he was a positive biblical demiurgist. So, negative <laughs> yeah. demiurges make sense because this is like the evil creator. Here it is. Yeah. Marketing wise, though, it doesn't fly, though. Negative demiurge, like people wouldn't go around calling themselves that. It's not cool. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, no, it's it's entirely an edict uh, term. It's not what the religious insider would would use. But I, I mean, these all these people are are dead, uh, and I'm sitting here in the 21st <laughs> century. You know, and I mean, uh, so I, I'm just trying to do some historical work and and nothing more. You know, I'm I am trying to represent their point of view, but then again, I'm not them, so. Uh, I'm going to use my own categories to try to throw some light on what they were doing in a way that's not, you know, doesn't blend them all together uh, right. unnecessarily. Yeah, a real technical term with some meat in it for the scholars. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's the game. It's a game. It it's really is just a game. And we, we just we're always honing down, refining that terminology. And, um, yeah, we try try out new things. Excellent. Well, awesome. Well, we are getting at the end. Uh, I will have information on David on the show notes, but uh, David, let us know where we can find out more about you. I know I've heard you do have a Patreon and people are really enjoying your courses because if you think, if you guys think you want to know more, we covered ground. He does stuff on the Ophites, who I love. He does stuff on, of course, my hero, Simon Magus. Uh, all these very cool courses that you can just take online and really get the whole ecosystem of the Gnostics. But, David, where can they find out more about your Patreon, your website, everything else? Yeah, so um, I, I do offer uh, courses online. Um, so you, you just well, you can just go to patreon.com, um, search for my name, uh, M. David Litwa, and... Um, You'll be able to, to find me on a simple Google search. Um, on the Patreon right now is a full course on the Found Christianities. I've got a whole series on everybody in this book. And I've got a whole series on everybody, every document in the Nagamati Library. So it's, it's quite full at the moment. And I welcome anybody who wants to get a deeper look into this material to um, come join me there. I'm not charging an arm and a leg. I'm just uh, putting the lights on, basically. Now, this book, I should note, uh, is sinfully expensive. And please don't blame me for the price, okay? I, mean, I really appreciate Miguel getting this um, and any of you who have bought it. But this is sinfully 
Christ. I mean, the demiurge priced this book, okay? Because because it's an because it's an academic book, okay? Yeah, Brill and what? Oxford are they just gouge you? They just kill you. <laughs> Precisely. I've got three extra copies of this. So if you join the Patreon at tier five, okay, I can send you this book, sign it if you want it. Um, just keep in mind, I'm in Australia, so you know, wait six weeks, okay? Um, but it will get to you, and it will get to you cheaper than what's uh, on Amazon. Uh, in fact, probably quite a bit cheaper. So I, I just use the money there to pay for postage and other costs that I incur. Um, and so that's where I am. And and while you're there, you can take all the courses that, that you want. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I put up about three videos a week, so I, I really appreciate everybody who who comes along for a listen. Yeah, I highly suggest it, and the Evil Creator is just a really good book for you know. I tell people you know uh, get the Gnostic New Age, the Gnostics with David, just the newer, later books that summarize. And uh, David's book, The Evil Creator, again, it should be part of everybody's. Uh, arsenal if you would and definitely take his courses because there's so much to learn so but uh, and we'll have this on the show notes for you but we are at the end vance i hope you are closer to understand our friend yaldabaoth oh yeah it's been a very <laughs> enlightening experience i'll never play pin the tail on the donkey again without <laughs> thinking about all this or I'm watch shrek when you watch shrek oh no like, ah, shrek. eddie murphy <laughs> <laughs> well you know lawyers say the law is an ass and now it has a new meaning for me <laughs> david's been delightful i really wish this interview was longer so um yeah good luck with your well, books thanks so much vance and miguel it's been a pleasure and yeah uh you guys take care hello to everybody in chicago and elsewhere i'll be visiting you in uh late may hopping over to chicago so it'll be good to be good to be back in the states awesome. and the weather will be great you'll love it yes <laughs> and i should awesome. say i mentioned to these guys i've just finished a, a book in on alexandria and so mm -hmm. i'm i'm currently looking for uh publisher there and uh so so yeah things are coming down the pike i've got something a whole book on carpocrates and marcelina coming out uh from rutledge here soon so stay tuned and marcelina she's a femme fatale i hope it's illustrated Ooh. i always want to she's know what great. she looks like she's hot <laughs> <laughs> she's a sex she deserves more mate. attention yes yes she's awesome awesome well david thank you very much good luck with everything and we look forward to the next time Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Sethians, history, community, and rituals. Uh, surprising nobody, I will, the resources, uh, resources that I got this from mostly are from the usual suspects. The Gnostic New Age by April DeConnick, uh, The Gnostics by David Brackey, and the uh, Fresh college freshman book, but still an excellent book, Introduction to Gnosticism by 
Nicola Denze Lewis from Brown University. So these are the books that I will uh, that I've used to reconstruct or do this presentation on the Sethians. <clears throat> but here's another book uh, before to give you guys sort of a, a good summary, a good foundation. This is the definition from Andrew Phillips Smith's A Dictionary of Gnosticism. I will go ahead and read it for you. They are indeed the classic Gnostic sect, as uh, Bentley Layton called them. The heresiologists refer to them as Sethians and also use names like Barbilonostics or just Gnostics. But they refer to themselves as the children of Seth or seed of Seth or the incorruptible or unmovable race. Sethian origins are not linked to any historical founder but refer to the mythology based on the figure of Seth. Sethian texts include such works as the Gospel of Judas, the Secret Book of John, the Holy Book of the Great Invisible Spirit, Marsanes and Zostrianos. Sethian cosmogony and cosmology feature a trinity of the father or invisible spirit, mother or bar below, and child or autogenes, the self-begetting one. Um, these produce the four luminaries, Harmazel, Oroyal, Davithai, and Eleleth. Sophia derives from the luminary Eleleth, and through her fall, the Demiurge and his archons create the material world and the human body and soul, although the human spirit is donated from the Pleroma or Aeons. And that's something to note is that the Aeons are often not just beings, but they're also places. So sometimes picture, picture it as one of those Russian dolls. In other words, Sophia as the Aeon can exist within the Aeon that is Eleleth and so forth. So, and the Mandeans still hold that today. The Uthras are both uh, places, times, and uh, entities themselves. <clears throat> so that's a good short definition of the Sethians. So to understand the Sethians, I've divided it into three. Uh, the, and these are the, well, uh, the three stages of uh, Sethian development, and I hope it will help you, uh, because again, <clears throat> there is no founder, but there are these groups that appear in the Nag Hammadi Library and beyond that are very similar. Even if uh, 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 scholar Frederick Wise famously, famously said the search for Sethians is the search for the myth mythic unicorn, but uh, we're going to find out who they are. Uh, I would say that the Sethians were probably concentrated mostly in Alexandria. Again, surprising nobodies. Some of you will not be at all surprised as you've uh, listened to the show and uh, studied the Gnostics yourselves. <clears throat> now, the first stage is the mystic Jewish stage. And uh, this happened probably before the birth of Christ. And these were disenfranch disenfranchised Hellenistic Jews who were done with the corrupt temple at Judea. They were done with the rising uh, surveillance power of the Roman Empire. They were just done with the governments of the world and many of the religions that have become too shallow. So they began to form into their own lodges and sort of skulk away from mainstream society. They took uh, Seth as, the, as their Gnostic revealer. And that's not something too... Uh, 
too rare in a lot of Jewish circles because, uh, after all, Cain and Abel are sort of the two uh, messed up sons, the two screw-ups, and Seth is the third one. The third is the charm who seems to have got who got it got it right. He was awake. He didn't have any of the issues of his father Adam, and he is the Sethians considered him uh, not his real ancestor, but more like his spiritual ancestor. And it should be noted too that the Gnostics thought uh, often that in some texts that Cain and Abel were actually sired by the demiurge. They were either archons or they were part or they were creations or from the raping of Eve. <clears throat> Uh, it should be uh, noted, too, that another figure that was important to the Sethians is Norea. She is described as Seth's sister, although she does appear in other texts as the wife of Noah, as, uh, as she is a cipher for Eve, and again, she is pretty fluid like all Gnostic divine feminine figures. And uh, I have a feeling that there probably was a time that there was a lot of texts on Norea, but they just didn't make it. If these monks uh, at the monastery, while they were putting their texts together or saving them, they definitely didn't want any texts that were written by women. But uh, we do have one text that made it, and that's the Thought of Norea, which you can find in the Nag Hammadi Library. And I believe the hypostasis of the Archons does talk about a book of Norea. So Norea is also important, but Seth is the one that really gets a lot of, uh, especially in the Nag Hammadi library, as the uh, the one who's getting it right and the one whose uh, spiritual descendants will bring about the eventual doom of the demiurge and the rescue of the rest of humanity that's out there, for the children of Cain and so forth. <clears throat> the second stage is the Christian stage. Christianity begins to spread across the Mediterranean, and uh, Jesus becomes a very popular incarnation of the dying and rising God-man, or the manifestation of the Logos. He is what uh, he is. He appears in Palestine, and he is what Osiris is, or Dionysus, these uh, savior gods that really belong to the mystery religions and aren't really in charge of weather or fertility. They're in charge with basically saving your soul or expanding your soul. Uh, some have speculated that because the Sethians, as we will discuss, are a Baptist group that they might have inter interacted with Christian Baptist groups and they hung out and uh, Jesus just became adopted. Of course, having said that, the Sethians are always very specific that Jesus is some sort of incarnation of uh, Seth, the first uh, being with Gnosis, the first mortal with Gnosis in our material world. They use texts like the Gospel of the Egyptians, the Secret Book of John, Melchizedek, and the Gospel of Judas. Now, it also should be noted that Stephen Davis proposes that the Secret Book of John might have started as part of the Jewish stage, because uh, the story... If you'll remember, it's uh, Jesus meets up with the Apostle John and then suddenly starts telling him a story. And then uh, you get the grand uh, 
cosmology of the Sethians, the Garden of Eden, the Demiurge and Sophia saga, and then Jesus and John just appear like it's a movie or something, and Jesus explains what kind of what's going on or what will happen. So it's very possible that it started as a Jewish text, and then the scenes with Jesus and John are were inserted later on, because if you take away those scenes, Jesus doesn't even appear in the 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 Sethian narration, the mythology, the cosmology, and all that. So interesting to note. Uh, what else? Then the third stage is the Platonizing stage. And this happens around 3rd or 4th century CE. And what is happening is that Christianity is beginning to grow. It is beginning to coalesce around an orthodoxy, around rules and so forth. And uh, it's beginning to decide what should be canon, what should be the right theology, and so forth. And guess what? The Sethians are outside looking in. So they are beginning to get marginalized, probably kicked out of churches. So what happens is uh, they start to uh, basically write Jesus out and find another Gnostic revealer for their uh, for their ideas, for their uh, for their inspiration, and so forth. At the same time, they are involved in a lot of the higher educational centers of Alexandria and other places. They're rubbing shoulders with the Neoplatonists, and they're also perhaps adopting more of a pagan view towards uh, the world and their own texts. Uh, they adopt murky characters like Allogenes, Marsanis, or Zoroastrianus. The, um, they use texts like the Three Stellas of Seth, Allogenes, Marsanis, or Zoroastrianus that I just mentioned. And it, you might, you, might consider the gospel of judas and in between because the gospel of judas is besides a sethian narration and a critique of this world and the demiurge it is a very harsh uh critique or polemic against apostolic christianity it slams the sort of growing christianity with their idea of sacrifice and apostles and bishops and all that so the gospel of judas might be like in between two and three so those are the three stages of Sethian development. <clears throat> now, something I will present to you is the four elements of Sethianism. We see them as they go through history, but what exactly defines a Sethian? Again, nobody has found one in the wild. Uh, nobody has really ever met one. So... But we do, by their texts and so forth, we do know who exact who they are. Who are the Sethians? Number one, a distinctive cosmology. And my, oh my, it's distinctive. Uh, it's a very Byzantine, elaborate description of how the universe came into being. And it has these, these, these uh, three features. It's emanationist which means that instead of some God going, uh, let there be light, or Zeus saying, I'm going to create this, and blah, blah, blah. It's more like uh, a supreme consciousness slowly understanding itself and spreading out in distinct features or identities all the way into the material world. It is hierarchical, which means that it always starts with the supreme consciousness, the invisible spirit, the one, whatever you want to call it, and then it emanates 
uh, always with the second principle of first thought, which is a female bar below or the trimorphic pretanoia or one of those. And then it just, it goes down. Unlike uh, the Valentinians who were very much in their cosmology, in their, with their aeons, there were syzygies, there were always two of each. And at the end, of course, you have Jesus and Sophia, or beloved and Sophia. <clears throat> the Sethians were more interested in triads, like their supreme reality. The Valentinian supreme reality was a depth and silence, the great mother and father. To the Valentinians, it was actually father, mother, and child, the autogenes, the self-begotten one that you find in the secret book of John. On a side note, which is interesting, is that this is something that uh, Karen King points out, uh, that the Sethians were accused and still are of being world haters and anarchists and all that, but why would their supreme reality be nothing more than a family, a father, a mother, and a child? To them, that was the supreme reality and the, the foundation of everything. So it doesn't seem that they were so much world-hating or society-hating if they were so, uh, you might say, family values kind of people out there in, uh, in the Pleroma. So that's one of the things that tells you that the Sethians were not these crazed guys and that they were part of society and they probably had some good views about society or at least how the structure of society was, that they were fine with it. Number two, uh, yeah, this is repeating, but it's also very important. They are the children of Seth. They are from another seed, even if they Seth is their... Uh, more of their spiritual ancestor. They are born with his seed. They're born with his ability to have gnosis. And yes, as it says here, Seth is the first pure figure in the world. He's not demonic or insane like Cain and Abel. Uh, he's not the, he doesn't come from, he's not the um, <clears throat> result of rape, but he's actually the result of Adam and Eve really uh, coming together in marriage and, and becoming a union as they understand that they must take on the world and that they are trapped and yelled about's world. So they refer to themselves as the seed of Seth. My favorite one is they call themselves the generation without a king over them. That's what, well, my favorite one, but also the immobiles and the standing ones. Number three, ah, no shock here, right? Teachings about Sophia or some divine feminine principle like Barbalo. Although I said, uh, unlike the male versions, uh, the females in the Sethian uh, myths are very fluid. Their identities change, uh, but it's really part of the same stream or same source that can materialize in different places. And uh, the task of this divine feminine, like Sophia, is to restore the light sparks from the world and defeat uh, the Demiurge. <clears throat> In some myths, obviously, it's not because of an error of Sophia, because just as uh, you find in the secret book of John and uh, the, on the origins of the world, but uh, either way, the divine feminine is there to rescue the world and to redeem those around, redeemed uh, the children of Seth and those who are ready. She is the first thought uh, 
or of the supreme consciousness, just like Barbello or is uh, described, or just like the Anoya is described in the Simon Magus myth. Um, her template is based on the ancient Hebrew concept of the La Shekinah or the wisdom of God. Uh, and that was very prevalent even beyond the Old Testament. The book of Enoch does say men rejected wisdom and wisdom now goes to a cloud until she is asked to come back again. So there was a very powerful view of wisdom uh, present in, a, in Israel tradition and Jewish tradition. And even then, uh, we, as some have said, Sophia and Barbalo are just uh, hidden forms of this ancient goddess of the world, the, the queen of heaven, Ashira or Anath. And these uh, part of uh, uh, the Sethians or maybe some of the, uh, the Israelites hid this goddess and, and smuggled her underground through Jewish history all the way to Christianity. And then she came up as uh, Sophia or Akamoth or one of those. So that's uh, an interesting speculation. <clears throat> Number four, baptism, <clears throat> excuse me, again, baptism or astral travel. Now it is uh, undeniable that all texts, or pretty much most texts, allude to some baptismal ritual. It was probably part of all of their rituals. What we don't know is it was it literal baptism was it symbolical, allegorical, or even mystical? Because even there is the famous five seals rite that you find in different Sethian texts. And uh, in uh, one of the texts, I, I, I forget what text it is, but um, the, the rite actually takes place in, um, in heaven, in the Pleroma. And you have aeons who are there baptizing uh, those who have risen, those who have taken this astral flight. And that's not, uh, and you wonder, well, why baptism? Well, it's interesting because in the secret book of John, it has this beautiful description when the invisible spirit is emanating. It's like, it talks about this watery light that's sparkling and everything reflects off of it, like Indra's net. And it's really beautiful. So this vision of how the pleroma was and how it was emanating like watery light must have really uh, influenced these Sethians who were taking flights and having visions and so forth. So baptism became um, extremely important. Another reason why it might not be just pure water is, uh, as it says there, the apocalypse of Adam says that no, water is a creation of the demiurge, something you want to avoid for your rituals. Um, but, and the other interesting thing about the baptism ritual is that, um, well, we do know, for example, that there was another mystical group doing baptism that was obsessed with baptism, and that was John the Baptist group. His group was doing it. We do know that uh, Jesus was a disciple of John the Baptist. Even more, we do know from the pseudo-Clementines that the successor of John the Baptist was none other than Simon Magus. And when John was uh, beheaded, was executed, Simon Magus was the one who took over this Baptist uh, group. 
and some of the uh, sects that you find in uh, the church fathers, the Simonians or the Hellenites, those who follow his consort Helen, have very similar theology to that of the Sethian. So it's interesting, this connection. Again, it's a bit of speculation. Then you can go to, of course, the Mandeans, who are still around today, and they are also uh, baptism-obsessed. Now, if April DeConnick is right, they appeared around the first century. They were founded by a woman called Mary. And uh, who knows if the Sethians might have interacted or sprouted from them, or the Mandeans sprouted from the Sethians. Or there were just two baptismal sects that sort of interacted and exchanged mystical notes. If uh, Professor James McGrath is right, then the Mandeans are actually even older, and they come from pre-exilic times. The Mandeans are the ones who were smuggling Ashira and Anath and the Divine Feminine, and later came out and uh, well, came out into the world and called themselves the Mandeans. So this is interesting speculation surrounding uh, the idea and ritual of baptism. Hopefully, we'll find out more one of these days. Uh, yeah, the Jews had a ritual called the mitvah, which was a sort of baptism, but again, it wasn't something that was daily and part of all the rituals, like with the Sethians, the Mendeans, or the John the Baptist group, and the Simonians. So those are the four. I think that gives us a very good uh, foundation for the house of the Sethians. So what happened to them? Well, in that picture, no, I don't think the motherships came and got them from and father on top of the pyramids. Um, I think the truth is we do not know. Uh, we have plenty of evidence of the Manichaeans being persecuted throughout time. We have uh, records of Valentinian churches being torn down. We have, for example, the secret book of James, I believe, talking about persecution. So we have evidence, but with the Sethians, it's like, uh, well, it's like uh, the usual suspects and Kevin Spacey going, what happened to Kaiser Soze? Poof, just like that, he vanished. Seriously, just like that, they vanished around three of the fourth cent, around the fourth century. Uh, again, I'm speculating, but it's probably possible that. Um, it's probably possible that the Manichaeans were very popular in Alexandria. They exploded around the third century. And what's ironic is that it was Constantine who helped the Manichaeans become popular because once Constantine made Christianity the favorite religion in the empire, the Manichaeans being the marketing geniuses that they were, they started simply going around saying, we're Christian, we're Christian, and they got a huge advantage over pagans and other Gnostics. So it, it's very possible that the Manichaeans might have absorbed the Sethians, perhaps the Neoplatonists absorbed them. Uh, we just, uh, we don't know. Uh, they might have just become a secret society, if some have said, and uh, become part of the Johannine Knight, Knights Templar um, uh, vibe or stream. What it is interesting, <clears throat> as many of you know, there's probably a Manichaean, Bogomil, and Cathar connection, right? Well, in the Cathar myth, when Satan is making the world very much like the Demiurge, he creates Adam and Eve as one of his slaves. 
but he 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 can't animate them. They're just they're like crawling like worms. They're described. He can't get them to animate them. His first slaves. <clears throat> Satan has this great idea, this politician idea of using one of his own other fallen angels to animate, grabbing their essence and putting them into Adam and Eve to animate them because it's spirit. Uh, yes, we are all fallen angels, according to the Cathars. So, but that's how um, Satan basically is able to animate humans. Now, what's interesting is that in the, in the Sethian myths, you get the same thing. It's, but this time it's Yaldabaoth. He creates humans, but they're moving. They're like worms. Adam is like a worm. And uh, he doesn't know what to do. And either he, Sophia, tricks him to blow his ass, his spirit, his stolen power from her on it, or she blows her essence and Adam rises. So these are the only two instances in history where you have this uh, narration happen, this scene happen. So there seems to be a direct link between the Sethians and the Cathars on this. But that's really all we have. We just don't know what happened to the Sethians. How about some Sethian factoids? Um, this is where it gets even, you might say, I don't want to say freakier, but we don't have any Sethian leaders. We have no names. The names like Zoria, Zor Zostrianos, I think is the grandfather of Zoroaster. Marsanis is not historical, we don't think. Uh, Allogenes obviously isn't because it means stranger, but we have no Sethian leaders or members ever recorded in history. I mean, we have Valentinus, Marcus the Magician, Mary Magdalene, Simon Magus, Carpocrates. I mean, we have a, the church fathers had a long list of these Gnostic heretics, these leaders, <clears throat> Marcellina and members, but zero when it comes to the Sethians. And that's pretty baffling. I mean, maybe they were that secret. Maybe they didn't have an identity once they became a Sethian. Who knows? But we have no idea who these Sethians are. Probably became the Illuminati, right? I don't know. Who knows? But they are obviously apocalyptical. They believed in a vision of history, of the history of creation from pre-cosmic times all the way to the end. They wanted to see the entire thing, and they believed any individual could have a revelation of the divine. Uh, they enjoyed deconstructing the Garden of Eden. They had visions, and there were different scenarios in the Garden of Eden. Uh, some have said this is the visions they had. I always wondered if they were actually going into multiple timelines and trying to find the right timeline to insert, like a Mandela effect, like uh, Philip K. Dick said, where you can actually insert a different past from parallel dimensions to get your timeline right. So they were getting the right Garden of Eden. Maybe, as some have said, they were actually the ones who were getting it closer to the Sumerian myths, and that's what they were representing with a few differences depending on the writer. But they loved the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. Uh, Plotinus obviously writes a lot about uh, the Sethians, he and Porphyry. They, they were attending his university. He had a lot of conflict with them. He thought they were using too much uh, Oriental theology, like from Zoroaster and the Meiji, 
for their theology. He thought they were a bit immoral when they were practicing Egyptian sex magic. Um, he was aghast that they would change holy texts, even if the, even if the pagans like uh, Plotinus or Celsus didn't like the Jews, they thought that their texts were holy and that they should not be changed. So they were horrified that the Scythians had no problem changing ancient myths and rewriting things and just being all around insulting to the gods. Uh, what did Irenaeus say? Uh, uh, he thought the Gnostics were even worse than Satan because at least Satan didn't talk bad about creation or God. He kept his mouth shut and did, did what he had to do, but the Gnostics had no such compulsion. They just opened their ma mouth and criticized anything they wanted. So these are interesting factoids about the Sethians. What about the rituals? Let's get into the ritual. Again, baptism is always there, but there are other features to the rituals um, in many of their texts. And these rituals are pretty much found within their texts, much like the Corpus Hermeticum doesn't just work as a myth or a teaching guide, but it's actually a step-by-step -step myth with a hierophant and his uh, students. You find the same thing in the Sethian texts. There's teachings, there's myth, and so forth. So beyond baptism, you have stillness and silence. Uh, meditation was probably very important. You probably read a lot of these texts or sang them, and then you would be asked to sit in silence and contemplate these. Also, contemplation of the divine realm, or as Jung would call it, active imagination, where we contemplate what is reality, what is our mind, what is the mind of God, and by that way we start making contact. Altered states of mind was probably, was definitely there, regardless of how they got there. Uh, perhaps some entheogens were used, astral flights, of course, you're always taking those out-of-body experiences, and you will also need these rituals after you die like the Egyptians when you have to navigate to the Archons out in space. Vowel magic, uh, yes, for those of you who uh, know this from my presentation about a year ago on vowel magic, it is at the site, but there is uh, definitely plenty of vowels and weird songs that you'll find in some of the, like the Gospel of the Egyptians with uh, vowels, and these they probably use as, a, as an incantation and for to induce an altered state of mind. And the texts always talk a lot about anointing, making us Messiah. So these are all the characteristics you would find in a Sethian ritual. <coughs> as I said, these are in their text. So I'm going to reconstruct three of them. So you can see and you can grab these texts from the Nag Hammadi Library, maybe even do your own rituals if you would like. So here they are in the, Trimor in the Trimorphic Protonoia. In this rendition of the Five Seals ritual, forethought descends into the underworld to awaken the initiate. She claims that her life spirit dwells even in the souls incarcerated in Tartarus, the deepest pit of hell. Her job is to awaken these souls and grant them gnosis. She is the voice crying out to everyone in Hades, awakening them to the knowledge of the spiritual seed that indwells within them. The inner spirit is then baptized in the water of life. 
the baptism at the hand of the baptizing angels Michael, Mikar, and Menisius strips the spirit of its physical and psychic accoutrements. Naked, the spirit is presented with a new robe of light given by the angels of investiture, Yamon, Elasso, and Amenai. Three good guys. And um, yes, the, the, like I said, the, and the trimorphic paranoia is where you have this baptism in the pleroma. It should be noted too, uh, as we've talked about groups like those in the Book of Yale or the, the Nassines where very much like the mystery religions where you went down into Hades and then you went up through the Stargate. Uh, one feature about the Sethians is that, no, we don't go down into Hades because we're already in hell. So we're not going anywhere. We're all asleep in this graveyard called the material world. And it is up to the goddess to awaken us. Yes, the, the Gnostic revealer provides the teachings and the foundation. But in action, it is the divine feminine that comes and rescues us to uh, or fully awakens us and shows us the way up the ladder, up Jacob's ladder, if you would. <clears throat> The five seals, still in the trimorphic protanoia, the five seals is associated with forethought's gift of gnosis. It is a ritual that strips the body and soul from the spirit and redresses the spirit with a garment of light. The spirit becomes so empowered by its awakening and transformation that the dark lords of the underworld, the demons of chaos, can no longer stop its ascent into the transcendent overworld. The five seals have defeated their tyranny and provided with the spirit with access to the realms beyond the cosmos. In this text, the divinity forethought, whose spirit indwells in the human soul, now invites the faithful into a transcendent realm of light. In this realm, the initiate spirit is progressively transformed from one type of divinity to the next, each level marked by more baptism and more investitures of robes, each robe more glorious and luminous than the last. <clears throat> now we have the three Stellas of Seth. This is part of the Platonizing Gnostics. Uh, this, uh, actually, I think I quote this from uh, April DeConnick or the next section, but it comprises communal hymns and recitations that were used to ascend through the three realms of the transcendent world, the realms where the father, the mother, and the son dwell demonstrate that Sethian initiations had communal settings and were preoccupied with achieving ecstasy. So it was a group thing, and it was definitely about altering your state of mind to leave your body. They combined repet repetitive chants such as, we bless you, we bless you, we bless you, you are perfect. They had the vowels, and again, these chants with whatever they were using for anointing, whatever was in the water, was probably creating some uh, pretty powerful altered states of mind. In the secret book of John, there's uh, an incredible uh, hymn. You have, again, you've got Jesus and John in one scene of the movie talking. They're the narrators, or Jesus is. Then you've got the Sethian saga going from the from the invisible spirit to the end to the defeat of the demiurge. And so, and what will happen to all the souls? But there is a beautiful hymn that gets put in there. And it's a very long hymn. And it's uh, it's forethought or Sophia. It's and it's a goddess coming to awaken those. 
And again, the, the Sethians were probably reading this secret book of John and getting into it. And then suddenly they would stop and recreate the ritual of the goddess coming down to awaken those from Hades. In the ritual, forethought calls out to the initiate, whoever hears get up from the deep sleep. The initiate cries and responds, who calls my name? From where does this hope come to me? While I am in the chains of prison, then the goddess declares, I am forethought of pure light. I am the thought of the virgin spirit who has raised you up to the honored place. Arise, remember you are the one who has heard. Follow me, the merciful one, your root. Guard yourself from faulty angels, demons of chaos, and everyone who ensnares you. Beware of the deep sleep and the enclosure of the inside of Hades. So it's a beautiful hymn in the secret book of John, but as you can see from these three uh, texts, that's more or less what the rituals would have been. We don't have the exact reenactment, but we do have uh, a little bit more than we do from the mystery religions about how the Sethians did their rituals. And for all we know, maybe the Mandeans are the ones who are the direct descendants of the Sethians. We just don't know, but it is fun to speculate. All right, let's continue with this. The goddess then raises up the initiate. She seals them five times in holy water so that death may no longer have power over him. This ceremony must be one of the earliest performed by any Gnostic group because it turns up also in the very old Sethian treatise Trimorphic Protonoia. In this text, and I, I am repeating myself as I, we talk, or we're covering the same ground, we learn that the first mystery involves a descent into the underworld, where the goddess Forethought calls out to her children in whom the spirit dwells. Forethought shakes up the underworld by destroying the bonds of the demons that had chained her children there. She awakens and liberates her spirit from chaos. And that's, yes, from the Gnostic New Age. All right. I see dead people because we're all still in hell. We're all still trapped in hell. Uh, there you go. So now we're back. I'll get us into gallery mode to feel some of your question. Oh, hey, Chester. Uh, he came down like forethought from the Plurome and appeared with us dead people here. So, uh, <clears throat> oh, one last thing before we get into question. I don't know. It's, it just shows you how infantile I am, but I can't help it. I was reading the book of John, the secret book of John, and you guys know that there's an archon for, not are there only archons for everything, for the stars, the earth, Tartarus, but there's an archon for every part of your body, right? Your mind, it's completely controlled. So I was reading some of them, and you've got... credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. <laughs> 